Let me read you a terrible passage. Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Their city never got built. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. What's the whole point of Hebrews 11? I think the whole point is, people who live by faith don't build their cities. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. God said to Cain, wander. Cain said, no, I'm going to build a city. God says to us today, we're strangers and pilgrims. And my response is, don't like that a lot. People who say such things, who admit they're aliens and strangers on earth, show that they're looking for a country, a city, same word really, of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing passionate word, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared a city for them. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm working hard to prepare a place for myself. What I've come up with in my life, given the gifts that God has given to me and the things that he's not given to me, as I work it all out, I'm an average athlete, I'm an average singer, I'm an average student in certain areas, and I'm real good in some others, and given the way God has built me, I found that, yeah, I can think fairly well, and I can express it sometimes pretty well in writing and sometimes in speaking, and, and I think my internal city-building energy comes down to, I must have something to say. How much pressure do you feel when you preach on Sunday mornings? A lot of people in our type of work have the same kind of energy of Cain. I must have something to say. We don't give a hoot if God has something to say. I must have something to say, and he jolly better, better well give it to me. I must have something to say. We were talking at the dinner table tonight about sometimes when you get behind microphones. Ever get sick of microphones? Man, I do. And I love them and I hate them. I was in Nashville speaking to Youth Specialties Conference, you know that organization? That's my first contact with them. That's a great bunch. Man, there's something. They had 2,000 youth pastors there. And I got up and spoke, and uh, Ken Miedema, the, the blind singer, made up a song while I was preaching and sang it when I finished. It was unbelievable. It was a great, great time. But as I got up, and I was given a big ballyhoo introduction, and here's all my books, and Dr. Crabb has done this, and he's done that, and I'm thinking, boy, this guy is good. I hope he does, does a good job this morning, you know. And, and I'm thinking, I, I must have something to say. And the first ten minutes, as I got up behind the microphone, and some of you know what I'm talking about, nothing's there. You're just dead. I felt dead, and I thought, man, you, I can't, i got to last 40 more minutes and I'm dead? Haven't you all been there? And most of you, just like me, we somehow manage? You know? <laughs> Nobody's fooled. But I remember in the middle of that, after ten minutes, thinking, I'm dead. And then I thought, why is that getting to me? And then my mind went into, I must have something to say. I'm building my city. And I felt a wave of brokenness come over me within 10 minutes of that message two weeks ago, or whenever it was, a couple of weeks ago. And I just remember saying, this is crazy. i got a city coming up. I don't need to have something to say today. I'd like to. I'd like to say what God has for me to say, but I don't need to be saying something today. I'll just do my best. And, and it happened this way. It doesn't always happen. This isn't a formula. But the juice started coming. I did a great job. I didn't feel proud, like I usually feel after I do a great job. That was really nice. I believe the energy of Cain, when I face the weeds in my garden, keeps me from knowing Christ. 
And I want to learn what it means to repent of that deeply, to be broken by the fact that so much of what I do, trying to get my wife to notice how pressured I am and to get her to respond to me, that's the stuff of which affairs are made. Because when your wife doesn't respond and some other woman does, and I can think of a woman or two who have said to me things like, gee, you really look tired, are you okay? And my thought is, ah, nobody has an affair for sex, you have an affair for your soul. I mean, sex is a nice part of it, but it isn't the key. And Isaiah says, let your soul delight in the richest affair. And my thought is, well, I don't know what the richest affair is, energy of Cain speaking. It's doing something to get somebody to respond to me. She doesn't, so I'll try her. It's all the energy of Cain. It's all building our cities outside the garden. None of your marriages is all that good, because you can't have all that good a marriage outside the garden. Because you married a sinner and you're one. So it's going to be a mess. But it can get better. And you can have moments of real joy. Just this morning as the dog climbed up on our bed and laid between us. And um, and I got out of bed this morning and came back and pushed the dog away and embraced my wife and talked to her in certain ways. She, she really just smiled and I thought, I'm really bringing a glow to this woman's soul. Man, that feels good. We have, we have a good marriage. But we'll probably fight again tomorrow. You know. You're out of the city, are you building? You're out of the garden, are you building a city? That's the first thing that's going to get in the way of your walk with the Lord. The second thing I want to talk about just for a minute is what I tend to do, and maybe you do as, do as well, is reduce mystery to manageable principles. Reduce mystery to principles that we can somehow somehow manage. Let me just say a word about this very briefly. I said this afternoon that we all hate mystery, and I think that's true. And I think we hate mystery because we hate vulnerability, and we hate vulnerability because we don't have anybody to trust. And therefore, what we do with the Bible, and and forgive this if it sounds overly stated, but what I think a lot of seminaries train men to do with the Bible is to reduce its mystery. It's called exegesis, which is a good thing, but it can be used badly. I'm all for exegesis. I'm not for scholasticism and exegesis. But there is a certain way of thinking as you exegete the text that basically is, I must find something that that is not only true, but that I can kind of put the cookies in the lower level where everybody can eat them, you know, kind of a thing, where I can I can take the truth of Scripture and reduce it to practical steps. How many times have your congregation said, be practical, Pastor? And I think there's a way in which the word practical is used well, but I think nine times in ten the word practical is a bad word. I think the, the word, the demand for practicality comes out of the energy of Cain. I want to build my city. Pastor, your job is to give me the blueprints. Now, if you will take the mystery out of the text and show me that in the original culture, this particular author meant this as he was speaking to his culture in this particular language. You studied that. That's what I'm paying you for. Now, if you can just kind of extract the, the, the principles out of this text and teach me how to live so I can get my city built, then I'll be very grateful. I'm personally very concerned about the 12-step movement. I was talking to a college campus chaplain six months ago, and he made a comment that was very striking to me. He said that now there's been enough of the recovery groups, and I think I think God has done good through them, as He's done good through all of us. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be overstating myself here. 
Uh, I've talked to some people who I think have been, God has really worked in their lives through the, through 12 step groups. I don't want to question that. I really don't question it. But I think there's some philosophical weaknesses to them, generally, even the Christian ones, often. And this college chaplain told me that um, he is, was now working with a number of college kids whose parents have been through 12-step groups to get over alcoholism or codependency or sexual addiction or whatever it might be. And he said that the, the kids told him as a, as a theme, all the kids, seven or eight that he had talked to now, whose parents had gone through 12-step groups, that, 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 that the kids had in every case said, you know, there has been change. Dad no longer drinks. There has been change. Mother no longer is this codependent type personality. There has been change. Dad is no longer going to topless bars. There has been change. But I don't want to go home and be with them any more now than before the change. And as the college chaplain probed that, the conclusion he came to is that the change that had been made hadn't gone deep enough. It hadn't dealt with the real issues beneath the alcoholism and the codependency and all the rest of the sexual addictions and problems and things that we all struggle with. Because anytime you have a step mentality, you're basically yielding to the energy of Cain. I want to be in control. I want to know exactly what to do. Now, the fact of the matter is, the area where you least know what to do is where? Answer? Relationships. The area where there's no steps to follow that will invariably work is the core of relational intimacy. There's no book that can tell you, here's how to be intimate with your mate. There's books that can say, here's some suggestions and they may help. But once we know all these suggestions and follow the steps, there still is a mystery about the whole thing that we're, we're stuck. Don't you all have moments in your marriage, with your kids, with your church members, with your board, where things come up and you know internally you haven't got a clue? And you've read the books. And, and haven't you gotten sick of reading some of the books? And haven't you begun to say of the making of books, there is no end? And you figure that a lot of trees have been needlessly sacrificed. <laughs> and maybe you read my books and feel the same way. That's a possibility. And, and you think that, you know, they're, they're, I'm, I'm, I've entered a realm of mystery now where I really don't know what to do. And if we haven't given up on finding out what to do, we go to the next seminar on that particular topic. Or buy the next book that has a jacket title, which seems to give us hope that will be tell us, that'll tell us what to do. We're, we're terrified of mystery. We just don't know what to do. You know where we get that from, gentlemen? I think we get it from Adam. Um, where was Adam when Eve was tempted? The text seems to indicate he was right there. Because the Bible says that Eve took the fruit and then turned to Adam, who was with her? I got a big question. If Adam was there, why didn't the guy speak? I called up six Old Testament scholars, top-level scholars, and said, was Adam there? One guy called and said, um, was Adam there when Eve was tempted? And he said, no. I said, you sure? He said, no, Adam wasn't there. I said, how do you know? He said, well, he wasn't. I said, you're a scholar. Could you do a little better than that? <laughs> and I said, have you thought about it before? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, think about it. There was a pause. After about a minute, he said, you mean now? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> so he, he got his Hebrew text out, and he's on the phone, and he's 
looking at the Genesis 3 passage and he's going, you know, talking in Hebrew and is muttering away. And after about four or five minutes of muttering away, this happened just this way. It was actually to Dan. I was overhearing the conversation. And um, the guy boarded into the phone. That son of a gun was there. <laughs> now, question, if he was there, why didn't he speak? What should he have done? Well, I don't know what he should have done, but maybe get a rake out and beat up that serpent or, you know, chop him in half or pull his wife out of there, make no provision for the flesh or was there a flesh then? I don't know, but do something. At least he should have spoken. He should have said, hang on, honey, God spoke to me. He said that God really say, yeah, God did really say, but he said it wrong here a little bit. He, he messed up God's words a little bit and he changed it around and you're starting to fall into deception and I want to teach you something and I want you to look in my eyes and I'm going to tell you this is what God said. Who knows what Adam should have done? I don't know what he should have done, but I know this. He should have done something. But what's striking to me is there's no record in the text, so I presume it didn't happen. Oh, that's an argument from a mission, which I know is weak. But there's no record in the text at all that God came to Adam and said, now in about two weeks, here's what's going to happen. The serpent's going to come talk to your wife. And when he does, he's going to screw up my message. Here's what I want you to do. He never told him. I think God is calling forth his manhood there. Know my definition of manhood? The courage to create in chaos. When you haven't got a clue, move. Hated mystery. There was no code to live by. There were no principles. God didn't say this, 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 and this. God said, here are the boundaries. Go be a man. And my response is, here are the boundaries. How do they work out exactly? What do I do now with my wife when she's like this? What do I do now with my kid when this happens? What do we do now with this board meeting when the board members tense? I better go learn management skills. There's a place for that. I want to suggest to you, I don't think that biblical principles, and there's plenty of them, I don't, I, I'm kind of wondering at least, maybe biblical principles were not given to us in order for us to make our lives work better. To some degree, I think that, that they were. But I think a far more rich purpose for which biblical principles were given is this. I think biblical principles were given to, to teach us how we can reflect confidence in the goodness of God as we live. And the effect many times will be our lives will work better. If you love your, your wives well, you got a better crack at having a good marriage. I think that's true. Train your kids up in a certain way, and the principle is when they're old, I think they'll turn out a little bit better. I think it happens a lot. But you can't pin all your hopes on it. That isn't your hope. Biblical principles are given for me to express my confidence in God by living according to them. And then when I live by them and nothing works right, then I still live by them. Because my confidence in God remains. He's good, and he's good enough. We hate mystery. And I like to take mystery and reduce it to principles that I can manage. That's the second mistake I make. Let me move from that and talk about the third. I want to spend the rest of our few minutes on that. I think we tend to avoid, I tend to avoid the tender parts of my soul by not telling my story fully to anyone. I think it's remarkable that the Bible is not written the way a systematic theology is written. The Bible's a story. It's a love story that begins with a divorce and ends with a marriage supper. It's an incredible story. And you've got to enter the story of Scripture, not just the propositions of Scripture, in order to get the Word of God. 
which is revealed through the story. And that has a lot of implications for hermeneutics in my mind. Tremendous implications. I think the most important topic for a biblical counselor today is hermeneutics. I really believe that. God tells stories. He's a storyteller. Adam and Eve's a story. I believe it's a true story, historical story, but it's a story. The whole Bible's a story. All over the place. Story, story, story. And my life is a story. It isn't a series of discrete events. It's a story. And I think it's important for me to tell my story. And as a man, I think it's important to tell my story to my children. To pass on life. God made man, male and female, created he them. And the word there is the remembering one, referring to the man. I'm the one who is to remember my life and tell my story in such a way that I can see God at work. Do my kids know my story? Does anybody really know my story? Do I know how to tell my story? There's three elements to your story. You've got three parts of your story. Part one is your present story. The story of your current primary relationships. This week over lunch, have you talked to somebody, not in a malicious, gossipy way, but about the story of your marriage? That's your present relationships. What's your garage story? What's your wallpaper story? You tell the story of your present relationships, and when you tell your story well, and when you tell your story for the purpose of remembering God, not just a gripe, or not just to be known, not just to be vulnerable, but to be the remembering one, that God's at work in the least likely of situations. When you tell your story as the remembering one, you know what comes out of your story, I believe? As a Christian with a new heart, and I have a new heart and you have a new heart, as a Christian with a new heart, I believe what comes out of your story is a passion to give. When I tell my story well about my present relationships, I, I find in me just a desire. I really do want to give to my wife. I feel terrible about how I treated her in their entryway looking at wallpaper a week ago. I feel fantastic about what happened this morning in bed. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about something within me moved toward her and she was delighted. It was really a nice time. I have, I have passion about that. I tell my story, something about the Spirit of God within me is prompted and my desire to give becomes real. When I tell my second part of my story, which is my inside story, first is the present story of immediate relationships, second is the inside story, what's happened to my soul in the course of my life? You know the story most men should tell about that? When they talk about their inside story, they tell the story of their father and their brother. What's the story of your father? Let me define a father for you. Let me tell you what I think a father is. It will help you tell your story. I know Dan talked about fathering. I'm not sure all that he said. But let me tell you what I think. I think a father is a man who fulfills three criteria. A father is a man who, number one, is walking ahead of you by 30 years, thereabouts, walking ahead of you on a path that you want to walk. And he's walking that path in a way you respect. A real father is a man who's walking ahead of you on a path. And it's a path you want to walk. And he's walking it in a way you respect. 
When I'm 80, I want to wake up and say sheer delight. When I'm 80, I want to live in such a way that when Rachel walks by me as mother walks by dad to get another cup of coffee, she invariably, when I'm with them, as she walks by him, she'll take her arm and kind of rub his shoulder as she goes by. She still laughs at his jokes. And they aren't all that funny. And I say, what did he do to this woman? You know, I want to do it to Rachel. Walking ahead of you in a path in a way that, that you respect, a path you want to walk, that's the first element. Second element, the father is one who, 30 years ahead of you in the path, turns around and looks at you 30 years behind. He looks you in the eye, and his look communicates, I know where you are, I know what you're going through. What, what older man, father or just older man, has looked you in the eye, and you feel incredibly understood? What older pastor has taken you under his wing and said when you're in the middle of a church fight, yeah, it's hard. This letter I read to you today, earlier today, this guy is a little younger than me, and he's told me, as of about six months ago, he says, I regard you as my mentor. And my thought is, man, you got bad taste. (laughs) And I think, well, if he could have put me in that role, and now that I'm getting older, I guess I ought to fulfill it once in a while, what does it mean to mentor this guy? Well, I tried to call him today, couldn't get hold of him, but I'll talk to him as soon as I can in response to his letter. What do you say with this letter? Do I know what it's like to be there? Not specifically in terms of a fundraising campaign for church. I'm not a pastor. But I know what it's like to be where he is a little bit. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to fix everything because I can't, but I'm gonna look at him and hopefully we're gonna talk in a way that when we're done, he's gonna walk away and say, yeah, he's been there. Do you have an older man in your life who said, I've been there, I know what it's like? That's the second element of father. That's what he does. He looks around and looks at you. third element of a father is the most important. He doesn't come back to help. He turns back to his path and keeps on walking. Because he's a man of transcendence. He's pursuing a bigger picture. You aren't the point. You matter a great deal, but something matters more to him. You know the biggest mistake parents make with their kids today? I mean, good parents is to make their kids too important. I was on a radio show with Kevin Lehman, the birth order guy, and um, he asked me, live radio, he said, Dr. Crabb, he said, if you could go back and do one thing differently with your kids, what would it be? And I said, spend less time with them. And he cut to a commercial very quickly. And when he came back, I said, I want to explain that. That sounds bad. I said, I really think that my biggest error, I must have something to say. I must speak into my world with the authority of a man and be a good father. And I'm the kind of father that worked in this and I taught my kids a Bible. Every Sunday afternoon, two-hour Bible lesson, overhead transparencies, all works. My kids knew a review of every book of the Bible by the time they were ten. My kids knew the word propitiation by the time they were five. You all impressed? My kids weren't. I made my kids too important. I went to all the ball games. I think my kids began to think nothing mattered more to me than them. What a terrible thing to tell your kids. You turn around and you follow God. Doesn't mean you don't go to any of the bowl games. That's the other extreme. Doesn't mean you never sit down and teach them the Bible. Of course you do that. Of course you go to the ball games. Of course you spend time. Of course you take walks in the rain. Of course you buy them lunch. Of course you go to their school plays. I think you do all that sort of stuff. But most of us are doing too much of that. Or at least when we're not, we feel guilty that we're not. And I'm saying, give your kids a bigger gift. Give them the gift of transcendence. 
You're walking ahead. And what you're saying to your kid by turning around after you look him in the eye and say, I know what you're going through and I care with all my heart, but two things. I'm pursuing God. Number two, and I believe you have what it takes to make it. Ran a men's men's group last year a little bit. I was involved in a men's group, didn't really run it. We talked about this concept of who believes in you. And one of the guys tells a story. He's a 35-year-old guy. He got involved as a manager of a chain, of a branch of a chain company. And within a year of his taking over the managership of this particular local chain, profits went from this level down a little bit. Not a precipitous drop, but it wasn't up like it's supposed to be. And he was scared to death the big boss was going to come in and fire him. And he told the story to our men's group how the big boss came in one day and said, I need to talk to you. And the guy said, oh, here comes the axe. And the man said, um, I'm going to give you a five-year contract and give you a raise. And the man looked at his boss and said, why? The profits haven't been all that good this year. They've been lower. And the man looked him in the eye and said, I believe in you. And he walked away. And the man in our group began to weep. And in his tears he said, I wish my dad would have told me that. Anybody believe in you? Anybody say it who's older? Three criteria for fatherhood. They're on the path ahead of you, a path you want to walk on. And you like the way they're walking, you respect. Second criteria, they turn around, they look at you, and because they've spent enough time with you, they've gone to enough of your ball games, they, they've talked to you enough, there's been enough conversation, you know they know. And when they turn around, they're not saying things like, oh, stop being a crybaby. When they turn around and walk away, they're saying, I believe in you. You follow me as I follow Christ. The words of Paul. That's a father mentoring his mentees. Question. Everybody in the room has a biological father or you wouldn't be here. How many of you have a man in your life who fulfills the role of a father? Raise your hand and keep it up. How many have a man that fulfills the role of a father? Look around. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about twelve. How many men are here? Fifty? The same percentage will hold true in your churches. How many men you got in your church? Two hundred? Twenty have fathers. That's tough. Tell your inside story. Talk about the fact that you've not been believed in. You have nobody that you're following after, that you can really emulate, that's your, that's your hero. You have nobody who's looked at you and said, I understand, you haven't got anybody like that. And as you start talking about the damage done to your soul and how empty you feel and how hard it is and how when things come up with your wife, you just feel like, I don't know if I have what it takes. I talked to a man last week talking with homosexuality and he said to me, I don't think I have the right stuff. That was his phrase. I haven't got the right stuff to move toward a woman. And as we spent three hours together to... Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I guess by now. We spent three hours together talking about, I don't have the right stuff. I never had a father. Nobody's ever convinced me I have the right stuff. What came out of that conversation, when you tell your story well, your inside story, you know what you come up with? An incredible longing to really be what you were designed to be. Tell your present story well, and you'll find a longing in your soul to give. You really want to bless people. Man, you want to give to people. You want your wife to be happy. You want your church to grow. And you want that more than you want to avoid criticism. You really do. And when you're aware of the passion God has put in your heart, you'll be willing to endure criticism if you know you're giving something. And when you face the pain in your soul, the lack of a father and a 
And whatever else your background might have been, maybe you were sexually abused. A lot of men have been. They don't talk about it much. But there's all sorts of difficulties. You begin talking about the damage. You talk about it long enough, well enough, deeply enough, honestly enough. And what will come out is, I long to be. And I really am. God said, I am, in thunderous capital letters. And we can whisper. This is from Tozer. He put it this way. We can whisper in response, I am too, in small letters. Well, I, I am. I mean, I got fingerprints. No, none of you has my fingerprints. None of you has my soul prints. Nobody could do what I'm doing tonight behind this microphone. Nobody in the world could do what I'm doing tonight. No one can do what you can do next Sunday behind your pulpit. Now, some could do it a whole lot better. <laughs> but no one can do it like you can do it. You've got, you've got the right stuff to do whatever God has told you to do. And you want to be. Third story, and I'll say it quickly, our time is gone. Third story is the deepest story. Present story, longing to give. Inside story, longing to be. The deepest story. We, we all feel very alone in this world. Stephen Crane, the nihilistic playwright, poet, has a little couplet that goes like this. A man came to the universe one day and said to the universe, Sir, interesting for a nihilist to call the universe Sir, Sir, I exist. To which the universe said, However, that fact creates no sense of obligation within me. End of story. One of the Job's problems was he felt that his obedience created a sense of obligation in God. And God said to him, would you condemn me to justify yourself in chapter 42? All of us would like to find something that obligates God. God, I have been faithful in the ministry for 10 years, and now the split? I don't think you're for me. I come to the universe and I say, sir, I exist, and I exist responsibly following your principles, and your response is indifference. You tell your deepest story and you'll find your fist clenched. You'll have seasons of your hatred toward God. You'll have times of your doubt. Other times you won't feel it. Other times it won't be there. Other times you'll be deeply in love with Christ. Other times you'll have a deep joy and rest in your spirit. You all know what that is. Some of you felt it tonight during the music. Music has a fantastic way of putting us in touch with the fact that we really do love our Savior. Don't we? Do we really hate Him? No, I really don't. There's moments when that's all I'm aware of in me. But i got the Spirit of God in me. There's something in me that really loves the Savior, and sometimes music can pull it out. You tell your deepest story long enough, hard enough, honestly enough. You talk about your fist clenched. You talk about how I've done this and God allows this. And, and you, you just got on with all your venom inside. And it just doesn't make any sense. And I, and I doubt. And I, you get beneath the, the prettiness and down to the ugliness. And talk about that long enough, honestly enough. And eventually you'll end up saying, but I long so much to worship. I long to give. I long to be. And I long to worship. Tell your story. Who do you have secrets from? Many of you raised your hands earlier. And Wes talked about the fact that many times it's people with sexual secrets that end up in blatant moral failure. And I don't believe we should all have a big confessional and all stand up and say, I'm lusting after the choir members, you know, the alto in the second row every Sunday I look at her. I don't think you need to tell that to everybody. 
I think it might not be bad to tell our stories to some people. Our present relationships, the dissatisfaction with our wives, our, our present relationships with our kids, we feel like impotent failures, our present relationships with our inside relationships with our fathers and our brothers and our friends and our histories and our backgrounds and the school teacher in second grade. And one guy told a story recently of he was uh, at a urinal in second grade with a bunch of boys in the boys' room and they were making noise and a second grade woman school teacher came into the boys' room because the kids were rowdy and she chose to come in at the moment that this boy was standing in front of the urinal urinating and she walked up behind him, whacked him on the rear end and dragged him out of the bathroom before he had a chance to pull up his pants. That's your inside story. This guy has a lot of symptoms. One symptom is a very common one. He, he has real trouble urinating in a public men's restroom. <laughs> I once had a guy with that problem. He couldn't, you know, there's a line of ten urinals and you walk up there and there's ten guys behind you and you stand there and can't go. It's not prostate, it's, it's, it's nerves. Maybe it's prostate, but it's also nerves. I cured a guy of that 20 years ago. My first case of that, I had him bring 10 cups of tea and then go to a public restroom. <laughs> Didn't get to the deep psychopathology, but it cured the problem. That's a true story. And he paid every penny. Wonderful what a PhD can think of in it. You tell your inside story of being dragged out of the boys' room when you were in second grade. And then when someone tells you that story, Pastor, you know the next sentence to say? The next sentence to say is, what would you have liked that teacher to do? What would have been a, res what would have been a respectful of your dignity as a little boy? Wouldn't it have been something if that teacher, hearing the rowdiness in the boys' room, maybe would have called the man janitor and sent him in? Or maybe maybe walked in, maybe that isn't all bad, I don't know, and said to the boys, listen, you're making too much noise. I want to tell you something. When little boys are rowdy, I get thrilled because it means they're going to be strong men someday in some ways. But your rowdiness now is a little too strong. You stop it. And I'll be waiting outside. And if I hear noise, I'll send the janitor in pretty soon. And you start talking like that, and people start crying. Because no one's ever treated me like that. You long to be. You start talking about your fears and your hurts and your lostness, and you say, I long to connect, I long to worship. Well, that's basically all I want to say to you tonight. I really want to find the Lord in a way I don't know Him today. But my journey of the last year and a half since Bill's death has been hell. I've cried more. I wish I were dead more. I feel like I've failed more in certain ways. I feel like I've been more confused about counseling. I teach a four-hour course every Wednesday afternoon. It's the major theory course in our counseling program. And it's been a pain this semester because I don't know what I have to say. And for a guy that must have something to say, that's tough. I feel like I understand counseling less well today than I ever have. When I get confused, I go back and read one of my books and say, oh, yeah, I remember. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not really confused. It's been a lousy journey. It really has. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know why? I've learned something about the energy of Cain in my soul. There's been some repentance of that. Still plenty of it, obviously. I think I'm entering into some of the mystery of life in a way I haven't before. And I've been telling my story a little better to a few people. And you know what the effect has been? 
Last point of the evening, and I'll shut up. In the middle of all the questions that this raises, I believe Christ reveals himself. If you persevere in the middle of the questions, don't compromise. Don't put on the pornographic TV in your hotel room when you're on a conference. Just don't do that. Persevere in, 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 in obedience. In the middle of all your questions, say, God, I'm going to obey even though I'm not quite sure what the point of it is. Because I've got a lousy relationship here, my background's terrible, never had a father, and, and you don't seem to do much for me, and, and i got the plenty of energy of Cain, and I don't seem to be able to obey myself out of that, and, and I still want a bunch of principles to obey, and maybe this is right and this is wrong. I don't know. Man, am I confused. And i got a thousand questions for you, God, but in the middle of that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I think you're good. And so I'm going to do what you tell me. And then Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you keep my commandments. And if you love me and keep my commandments, I will what? I'll show myself to you. It's an act that you don't predict, you don't corral, you don't manage, you don't harness. But in his sovereignty, he does. If we lay the groundwork and put ourselves in a position, then at unpredictable times, he makes himself known. And my testimony to you guys is this, and some of you could say it a whole lot more powerfully than I can possibly say it, but my testimony is that there's been a, I wouldn't say a deeper sense of God, in, in a sensual sort of a sense, but, but, I, but I feel like the reality of God seems more inescapable to me today than it did before. The reality of who God is seems somehow more difficult to avoid strange that I want to. It seems like he's there in a way that really makes more sense to me. And I think on the basis of that, every now and then a little bit of something sneaks out of me that brings my wife joy. A little something sneaks out of me that some people say, I think I want to know Christ a little more because I've seen you. And my thought is, my land, where'd that come from? That doesn't make any sense to me. And... And little more of that's happening, not much. A whole lot of some other stuff's happening. You know, like, Larry, you're a pain in the neck, and you seem arrogant to me, and I don't like the way you teach, and I don't like this, and that's happening all the time. But every now and then, a little bit of stuff sneaks out. And man, I love that. Maybe when I'm 80, I'll, I'll have some sheer delight experiences, and maybe you will too. Let's pray together. And I haven't got a clue if the Spirit of God is choosing to do anything in your heart at the moment, but any thoughts that have stuck with you that you've underlined in your mind that seem to grip a little bit? Maybe a lot of it's been kind of dull and mundane, I don't know, but maybe a little bit of it, something was, maybe a comment made in passing that I don't think was very important is the comment the Spirit of God's doing something with. But whatever it is, just be aware of it and ponder it and bring it before the Lord. What's the energy of Cain in your life? What principles are you angrily trying to follow? What story do you refuse to tell? So you never get to those tender parts, those longings to give, to be, and to worship. Lord, I don't feel real powerful at the moment. I've just been chatting loosely here. And I don't feel like you felt when power went out of you. I just feel like I've talked for a while. But I really do believe that that you're at work. That maybe you're going to change me just a little bit because of my sitting up here and talking like this for an hour. Maybe I'll have a little more courage to face the energy of Cain and me. Maybe a little more courage to 
give up on the man, the principal's work, and live in the mystery. Maybe I'll have a little more courage to tell my story. Father, you know that as I share stories up front and talk about problems, and some folks are sitting here thinking I'm very vulnerable, you know how unvulnerable I am. You know how many stories I won't tell. I pray that you'll give me the courage to be a better storyteller and then to get caught up in the big story, the story that's so much more important than mine, the story of yourself and what you're doing, and then I have the privilege of being a part of it. Somehow make that real. I bless, pray that you'll bless each of us here tonight, bless these guys and their ministries and their frustrations and their desperation and their midnight screamings and their angry, angry times. They go home to wives they have no idea how to connect with. They go back to battling with terrible sexual temptations that are so perverted they haven't got a clue what to do. Father, we're all a mess, but you love us. I pray that somehow that'll change us and to people who persevere, living for the city that's yet to come. So you'll not be ashamed of us. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.